Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. And this week, I'm with Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerability for Oklahoma Watch. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, Whitney has covered the effect on Oklahoma's nursing home residents. COVID is again threatening nursing home residents across the state, where staff shortages were already at crisis levels, even before the latest surge. As those facilities are preparing for another exodus of staff, as federal vaccine mandates go into effect for nursing home workers. Whitney, what's looming for these facilities? Well, like you said, Ted, these nursing homes are fighting the latest surge of COVID-19, and they're doing it with a bare-bones staff. A lot of employees have left these facilities over the past couple of years because of the high stress during COVID and low pay. And now a mandate from the president will require nursing home staff to be vaccinated. So there's another incentive for employees who don't want the vaccine to leave and go find other jobs. So right now, about 68% of nursing home employees are vaccinated. And that that means that the new mandate is going to impact about a third of the workforce. Okay, now you mentioned that vaccine mandate. Was that part of the Supreme Court rulings we saw earlier this month? It was. So there were a few mandates up for debate, and uh, the court halted one mandate, for instance, that would vaccinate workers at large private businesses, but it allowed for a mandate that's going to require all facilities that receive federal funding from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So that includes nursing homes. Some nursing home administrators are worried that staff are going to leave and take similar jobs at assisted living facilities or retirement communities where employees are doing similar work, but they're not required to be vaccinated. Got it. Okay. Well, what's the timeline for implementing those mandates? So we're going to see this um, starting to happen pretty quickly over the next couple of weeks here. Nursing home employees have to have their first vaccine by February 14th, and they should be fully vaccinated by March 15th. Okay, you've been keeping up with the infection reports for nursing homes. What are the latest numbers? Well, since March of 2020, at least 1,848 long-term residents and workers have died from COVID-19, and the majority of those are residents at these facilities. The state health department releases these counts in reports that come out every Wednesday. And thanks to a couple of tips this week, um, I've actually found a pretty significant discrepancy between the state's numbers and the numbers that are being put out by a federal agency that oversees nursing homes. They're reporting significantly more infections and deaths related to COVID than the state health department. So that's actually something I'm looking into right now um, and plan to, to write some stories on in the future. So definitely check back to Oklahoma Watch um, to our website for more information on that soon. What what else do listeners maybe need to know about how nursing homes or their loved ones who are nursing home residents might be affected during this latest surge? One thing I think is really unique to this surge as compared to what we've seen in the past couple of years is visitation. Visitation is still going to happen at facilities even as they're experiencing outbreaks among their residents and staff. 
Uh, a year ago, I spoke with the administrators at Beatles Nursing Home in Alva, and they were on complete lockdown. No visitors in and out. Residents were confined and isolated to their rooms um, because they had a severe outbreak that was killing residents, and this is what they felt like they needed to do to protect them. Um, but at this point, there are, are laws that say nursing homes cannot shut down to visitation. And so even as they're facing these outbreaks this time around, uh, visitors are still going to be allowed to see their loved ones in these facilities. Now, it might look a little bit different than what it has looked like over the past couple of months. Um, for instance, they might have to happen outdoors or in special rooms within the facilities. Um, but we're not going to see uh, restrictions around allowing visitors to actually see their loved ones. Mental health has been a big concern around that the last couple of years. Well, I would think, you know, that was true for a lot of us that went through isolation periods during the pandemic and uh, were either isolated at home or wherever. That had to just be magnified for people uh, living in nursing homes, wasn't it? Absolutely. And we've heard that a lot over the last two years or so. So that's something that's been a big concern, as much of a concern as the virus at this point. And that's why uh, visitation is going to continue. Thanks, Whitney. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Jennifer has been uh, writing about school enrollment and collecting data on that. Why did you want to tackle that topic, Jennifer? I love data, first of all, um, education data especially, but um, enrollment especially is um, the most basic data point. I think it tells us where kids are going, and the last two years have been uh, very unique and disruptive because of the pandemic. So I really wanted to see where those kids landed this year. And what did you find out? What was the big takeaway? The big takeaway for Oklahoma is that many kids did return. Um, there was a big drop last year. And um, this year we did see an uptick of a little under 1% back overall in public schools um, many of those were also in the younger grades, pre-K and kindergarten. So if, if they came back, that suggests they went somewhere, right? Where, where did they go during the pandemic? Many kids, um, the younger kids did not attend school last year. Pre-K is optional. Kindergarten can be delayed by a year. And so a lot of parents chose to do that. There were also some families that chose to homeschool when they wouldn't normally have done that because of the risk of being inside a public school with the virus. And, um, you know, some kids just were lost. I mean, honestly, the schools didn't know where they went. Wow. Uh, what other trends stood out this year when you looked at that data? Virtual school um, is a big one. You know, the virtual charter schools saw a pretty big increase last year. And this year, um, Epic, the largest virtual school, saw its enrollment decrease by about 35%. And that's actually 21,000 students. Holy cow. So um, what's EPIC's total enrollment? Do you know off the top of your head? how We know it's the biggest district in the state now, right? Right. I believe they're at about 
40,000, a little under 40,000. Wow, so a third of those uh, coming or going is a huge number. Did you get uh, any sense of how they cope with that kind of influx and outflow? I would guess it's easier for a virtual school uh, than it is for a brick and mortar school, but, but I would think still you have to staff up for that. You have to have other resources. How do they handle that? still very difficult to prepare. And I know they have had one round of layoffs. Um, some teachers were affected in that just to kind of right size what they called it, you know, their employment, their um, staffing numbers to match the number of kids. And we had inflow and outflow too at traditional brick and mortar schools and person schools. How did, uh, how does that affect them, right? Because we also have teachers that were affected by the pandemic. How in the world do they maintain appropriate staffing levels and resources at, uh, at those schools? I think it was pretty difficult this year. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of consensus. I think most school leaders assumed that many kids would come back this year. And for the most part, that was true. Um, there was about 200 school districts out of our 525 or so that actually have rebounded to the 2019 numbers. So not only grew from last year when it was down a little, but are above pre-COVID numbers. Have you talked to anybody that gave you any, any idea um, how that might affect a student's learning process or their education? Um, you know what I'm asking? I think it would be hard for an eight-year-old to be attending school and then be homeschooled or be out of the system altogether and then kind of suddenly back into it. it um, kids like routine so much. Have you gotten any feedback on how they're affected by that sort of in and out the pandemic caused? This has been a very unusual couple of years. The data has long shown, research has long shown that kids do better academically when they have that stability in their school system. And, um, you know, we have seen a trend over the last couple of years, and certainly now there's a new law that allows more transfers, but there has been this trend toward more um, acceptance of moving schools um, more frequently, even within the same school year. Wow. Okay. What, what data set did you use for the story? This is the October 1 student count that comes from the State Department of Education. So every year... Um, on October 1st, all schools count how many students. This is literally just, you know, one, two, three, the number of students, and they report that to the State Department of Education. They release it around the end of the year. Got it. Thanks, Jennifer. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from our Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative reporting at oklahomawatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. And this week, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. Keaton, you're working on a project that involves collecting survey responses. What's that about? Yeah, so I've, I've created a survey, and you can find it online at oklahomawatch.org. Um, and the goal of that survey is to get responses from people across the state that have been impacted by our state's justice system. Uh, something I've discovered reporting over the past 18 months or so is that so much of our criminal justice system is local in county jails or uh, police departments, city police departments. Um, and I want to hear from people about their experience with, with, you know, 
those police departments and jails and whatnot. What, what motivated you to create that survey? Yeah, so I think it was just my realization focusing primarily on state prisons and, um, you know, what's going on at the legislature, that there, there's stuff happening, you know, in rural parts of the state um, that perhaps I'm missing or, or don't have my eye on. Um, and I'm hoping to, to reach people um, in, in addition to people who live in the major metropolitan areas, people in the rural areas, uh, to hear what's going on and what's uh, perhaps been undercovered uh, in the media. So what what kind of people are you hoping to connect with? Are you just looking for people who uh, have been involved with the system, who have been incarcerated at some point or or spend a night in jail, or are you looking for a, a broader audience than that? Uh, I'd say the audience is very broad. Um, of course, someone, uh, you know, those who are justice involved who maybe have a felony or misdemeanor conviction um, certainly applies to you um, if, if that's the case. But also, uh, you know, people who uh, work in the justice system, uh, whether it be in a prison, a jail, um, at a courthouse, um, I certainly want to hear your feedback about what's going on and perhaps uh, what needs to be changed. Um, and even if you've you've been a victim of a crime and perhaps feel that that justice wasn't served, um, the survey certainly applies to you. I would think that so many people fit under that umbrella somewhere, right? Everything from police officers to bail bondsmen to lawyers and judges to bailiffs and court report. I mean, they're just... Uh, all kinds of different jobs that would have something to contribute to the survey, wouldn't they? Definitely. Um, the criminal justice system is really broad. Um, and, you know, th- looking at, you mentioned bail bondsmen um, and, and the issue of, of bail reform. Um, you know, if perhaps there's a case where someone is in jail um, because they can't pay $100, $200, $500, um, that, that would be something I'm interested in looking into. Um, and even the issue of probation and parole, um, if someone is, is struggling to pay fines and fees related to that or the conditions of their uh, supervised release are just um, hard to keep up with, um, those are certainly the kinds of issues I'm interested in, in looking into and diving into. Okay, and what somebody goes to take the survey, what are they going to find? So the survey is seven to eight questions. It's not long. Um, probably 5, 10, 15 minutes to fill out. And it asks general questions about what your initial experience with the criminal justice system is, what your level of involvement is. And then it goes into some questions uh, regarding what you think needs to happen at the state level to reform issues, perhaps what needs to happen at the local level. And then it asks some questions about whether or not you'd want us to contact you and, uh, ask for contact information and that sort of thing, but we won't contact you unless you give the thumbs up on that. Okay. And you know, when you're hearing from readers and they're giving you tips or, or feedback on stories, how often does that uh, contact from readers turn into a story? It happens all the time. Um, I just looking back at stories I've done over the past year and a half or so. Um, one story that comes to mind is when it was announced or I discovered through a tip that tablets were coming to our state prison system. Um, but, uh, the flip side of that was just the high costs and fees associated with those tablets that fall onto 
incarcerated people and their families. So that was an issue I dived into. And also whenever COVID was rampant in our prison system, got a lot of tips from people incarcerated and family members uh, that helped inform my coverage. And I certainly appreciate. That's great. Thanks, Keaton. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.